Hello. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I'm going to welcome you to this morning and hand over to Jonathan Kestenbaum of Nesta to chair. Just a couple of words of brief introduction. Um, I'm very grateful to all the speakers and to Nesta, Friends Provident and Reuters for both uh, speaking and indeed for Nesta hosting and the others for sponsoring this event. What is this event? <laughs> it's one of a series of breakfast forums that Editorial Intelligence puts on uh, roughly every month, every, in fact, some, some are two a month. And we aim to talk about crunchy topical topics with people who know about those topics from their various vantage points, whether that's policy, uh, business, or indeed the commentariat, which is our Ballywick at Editorial Intelligence. Um, we have a number of people in the audience here who are going to make as valuable a contribution as the panelists. And this event is being uh, podcast and will be put up on all our various websites. And it's also being blogged by, amongst others, Morris Mendoza, the editor of World Business, who rather presciently featured on the January cover of World Business, the topic of, you've guessed it, innovation. So I'm going to hand over to Jonathan Kestenbaum, who in a previous incarnation helped Sir Ronald Cohen set up the Portland Trust, which recently developed a $500 million pound fund, million dollar fund for small and medium-sized businesses in the Middle East. He now runs Nesta, which is without doubt increasingly interesting and authoritative on the question of innovation. So Jonathan, if you could take it, take us through the morning. Thank you. Thanks very much, Julia. And I think we need these for purposes of podcasting, so um, all panellists to speak into them. Welcome, everybody. And um, first is my sense of absolute delight at the fact that there are huge numbers of people who are prepared to get up at an ungodly hour and to consider the innovative capacities of Britain, which has to be a good sign. It falls to me to, to moderate and to chair this session. But at first, as Julia said, I have to welcome you here to Nesta. Nesta, as you know, is the largest single endowment in Britain, which is exclusively devoted to fostering and stimulating innovation. We boast a combination of private and public investment, which amounts to about 350 or so million pounds, which we both invest in early stage innovative companies, stimulate innovative thinking right across the UK, and perhaps no less significantly, have a, uh, an increasing input into the policy and practice of innovation. But Really, what is increasingly important to us, of course, is to stay as close as possible to the opinions, to the thoughts, and to the forward thinking that, uh, that we have in this country about its innovative capacity. And that is, of course, the backdrop, uh, the backdrop to today. So my job, somebody once told me that the job of the chairman is to make sure things start on time, finish on time, and something very interesting happens in between. So we've just about met the first requirement, I am absolutely committed to ensuring that we meet the last requirement, which is that we will finish on time. And I know that um, those to the left and right of me will make sure that we meet the, the middle requirement. So I will um, set the, uh, the instructions. The instructions are that the panelists will have approximately five minutes or so to set the case, their case, for an innovative Britain, where Britain's innovative edge lies, or in fact whether Britain's innovative edge is becoming increasingly uh, reduced or called into question. We've spoken in advance and I think you'll find that, that Jane and Martin, that Amanda and James all have very different perspectives on this question. But the single most important task that I will have, uh, co-panelists, is to keep you all 
to absolutely five minutes. Um, after which time, I think, uh, I think what's very important to us is that there is a constant flow of discussion between panelists and audience, which I will do my very best to moderate. So we, <clears throat> we're going to take it actually from, from left to right, which means, Jane, that you kick off. Uh, Jane Stevens is the Managing Director of Operations at Friends Providence, which um, I'm afraid to tell you, Jane, you have been working at for the last 26 years. Yeah, it is a little. But anyway, you worked your way all the way up. You were Director of Customer Services, and a couple of years ago, Jane was promoted to uh, becoming Managing Director of Operations. In the conversation that we had in advance of today, Jane had a particularly interesting perspective on the degree to which innovation requires a whole set of cultural shifts. So perhaps you'd expand on that, Jane. Okay. Um, yes, so the question is, has Britain lost its innovative edge? I think my simple answer would be, no, it's still there. It just looks very different than it used to years ago. I think when people talk about innovation, it conjures up images of Raymond Baxter or Maggie Philbin, assuming you're a certain age, of course, uh, presenting tomorrow's world. And it used to be about planes going higher or trains going faster or robots making the breakfast. And it all made very good TV. And I think actually you felt really good about being British uh, and the innovative edge that we had in those days. I think since then, the world has changed. You know, Britain has lost its supremacy in terms of manufacturing. But my belief is that innovative edge is still there, but it's actually just moved to the service arena. You can argue that behind every manufacturer, there's always been a good financer, right back to the year, the year dot. Um, but it's pretty hard to imagine financial services making great TV. Uh, it's also hard to imagine, you know, unless you dig into the, sur into the surface of it and think about innovation in a very holistic way as to why financial services is actually innovative at all. When you think about it, though, Actually, financial services in the UK has turned Britain into one of the financial centres, or London into one of the financial centres uh, that's key to the world. I think on the news this morning, it talked about London jumping from number six uh, to number four, overtaking Paris uh, and New York. So there's still growth there. It employs four million people uh, in the UK. We actually contribute eight billion in corporation tax. That's something like 25% of the total which I thought was a staggering amount, and contributes 7% to the GDP. So it's a big industry, and we haven't actually become one of the world leaders without being innovative. But as I say, you have to think about it in quite um, a different way uh, than you used to. Yes, it's still partly about designing or inventing products, but it's not as obvious as it used to be. When you think about things like guaranteed bonds, on the face of it, they don't look very different than uh, just putting money uh, into uh, some pot somewhere. But underneath, in terms of the derivatives that, that actually support them, it is a very different environment, and there's a lot of work gone in to ensuring those products are innovative. Um, when you think about unit trusts, investment trusts, years ago, um, the idea of people owning shares was very much the domain of the rich. That's changed very much that now Man on the Street is very much investing uh, in a share world. And that hasn't happened without people thinking about ways to move forward. Even mortgage endowments, very much maligned these days, but actually they were a way in which we opened up home ownership to a group of people who couldn't actually get the same sort of lending in an environment where banks 
were much more cautious and wouldn't have uh, interest-only mortgages. I think, however, innovation has very much moved from this sort of product-based thing towards the whole customer experience and, indeed, social responsibility. Friends Provenant was the first company to produce an ethical stewardship fund nearly 20 years ago now, but that's been developed by the industry to give very much different choices for people in terms of how they invest. But probably the most important area where we've had to be innovative is in the area of gaining efficiency. We're in a global economy and finding ways to ensure that we can still compete has actually meant we've had to start looking at how we employ technology to really drive self-service and enable our customers to do things in a different way, ensuring that both our back office and our front office are much more efficient uh, than were in the future. I mean, it's implied earlier that innovation used to be about robots and things, but actually today it's still about robotics taking the, the basic functions away from people to ensure that we can keep uh, work as efficient as possible. You know, ten years ago, it would have probably taken one individual, they could probably deal with something like a couple of hundred uh, pension um, members in, in a scheme. Now it's something like 5,000 for each individual. So that's quite a shift over the last few years. You used to have to fill in application forms, paper application forms uh, for an insurance industry, send it off to underwriters, wait a couple of weeks for them to complete uh, their underwriting before documentation could be produced and put in the post. Now it's all done in a matter of minutes, over in the broker's office, using the internet, expert underwriting, innovative software that actually allows those things to be done very quickly, very efficient for the customer. Sorry. Um, just moving on to sort of the cultural side, um, it isn't just about getting the efficiency, we also have to find you've got the right sort of culture in, in place because that, in that way people think out the box uh, and ensure that they innovate on a day-to-day -day basis. I think this is an area where the UK is uh, having been challenged in terms of ensuring they're taking risks uh, and doing the right things to really drive that innovative edge because we are um, guilty of just wanting to, to do things um, in the way they've always been done. The regulator probably isn't helping there, uh, because certainly our hands are tied in many ways, or it feels like our hands are tied, uh, but actually the culture needs to, needs to change. So to sum up, as I think that's what I'm getting the message for is, <coughs> actually I think that innovation is still very much with us today, but I think we've actually taken the robots out of tomorrow's world and actually used them in today's world to drive efficiency. Thank you. Thanks, Jane. So if... Um so if the question is, where is Britain's innovative edge? For Jane, it's something to do with services, particularly financial services. Customer experiences, you may want to pick that up later. Social responsibility, you may want to pick that up later. Efficiency in technology, and uh, a nice little comment at the end about the relationship between regulation and innovation. So four or five uh, really sharp observations. I'm going to hand over to, to Martin van der Weyer, of course, known to almost everybody here. Martin is, uh, I think, one of Britain's most distinctive financial journalists, business editor and um, any other business columnist of The Spectator, former city editor of the week and a, a prolific writer. Before becoming a journalist, Martin, as you know, had a career in the city and is delightfully described as a Yorkshireman with Flemish ancestry. Um, if for Jane, Britain's innovative edge 
rests somewhere or another in services, I think Martin may have uh, some observations about science and innovation. So over to you. Thanks very much, Jonathan. The Spectator, of course, the must-read journal of innovation. Um, and and uh, at least it was in 1828. Um, I, yes, I, I, indeed, I'm going to attempt to tackle the, the sort of robots making the breakfast aspect of this, talk a little bit about science, engineering, industrial design. And I hope this isn't too innovative an approach, but what I thought I would do is give you first the sort of quick, lazy, argumentative comment journalists cut on this, and then deconstruct it and tell you why most of it's wrong. So uh, the lazy journalist says, yes, of course, we used to have an innovative edge in these fields. It's part of our self-image of Britain, the inventors of everything from cricket to the hovercraft to the Russell Hobbs electric kettle. Um, and uh, we were right up with the Americans designing the first computers in the 1940s. It was a Brit who invented the World Wide Web and so on. But nowadays, we're out front only, perhaps, in Formula One race car engineering, stage design, some aspects of architecture and so on. Um, and if you wanted me to cite two personalities who sum up the state of innovation in Britain in these fields, one might be Jonathan Ive, the Chingford-born, Newcastle-educated designer of the iPod, who, has, of course, has made his entire career with Apple in California. The other might be Professor Pillinger of the Open University, the, the whiskered professor who, who sent the Beagle uh, space module to Mars, uh, but unfortunately lost it. <laughs> it was never seen again, though um, hats off to him for trying. So the lazy journalist says that Despite innovation being part of our genetic makeup, we've, we've lost it. Why? Because our education system is failing, particularly in science subjects, perhaps, because government funding for research is patchy, tied up in red tape, all that sort of stuff, because we don't have a sufficiently well-developed venture capital sector to enable good ideas to become saleable products, because we've actually lost respect for making things, and too many bright young people just want to run hedge funds or be estate agents, and even, forgive me, Jane, we've sunk to citing mortgage endowments as an example of fine British innovation. Um, related to that, uh, the city diverts too many capital resources into backing spivvy private equity deals, and if you believe Will Hutton, that is killing off innovation in every, every company that they buy. Finally, basically, we've just lost the game and China is going to rule the world. Um, so that's the lazy, lazy answer to this, how much of it's true. Well, quite a lot of it turns out to be plain wrong, actually. Um, what I'm, the rest of what I'm going to say is based on not my own experience in laboratories, which is limited, but conversations with a number of people who really do know about this, starting with Richard Sykes, the rector of Imperial College London, former chairman of GlaxoSmithKline, um, who I talked to last week. Also, some colleagues of mine at York University, where I'm a um, visiting fellow of the management school. Thirdly, a professor of physics from Durham, who, reverting to lazy journalist style, I just happened to meet on the train and talk to. <laughs> um, what he told me, incidentally, was that we should seriously be worried about science education, that almost every single British undergraduate who arrives to study physics at Durham has to be put through remedial maths courses to bring them up to scratch and that none of the Chinese students arriving to do the same course need the same remedial education. Um, what Richard Sykes told me is much more upbeat. He says that in biosciences, his field, alternative energy research and other areas, British research work is as good as anywhere in the world, streets ahead of Europe. 
and if only there were a, a level playing field for funding, would be right up with the Americans. He says the thousands of Chinese students entering British universities may be good at maths, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but the Chinese haven't actually invented anything for 2,000 years. Um, he also says, red tape or not, that this government has actually poured money into university science and research since 1997 um, at a far more impressive rate than happened in the 20 years before that. That isn't the sort of thing I would naturally be telling my readers, but I report it to you as coming from someone who really knows. Uh, my friend Professor Tony Robards at York, who set up the Science City business cluster, of mostly bioscience businesses around York University, says pretty much the same thing. There is plenty of grants available to get you to the proof of concept stage of exciting new ideas. He particularly praised David Sainsbury's work as the science minister. So I think the problem is what happens next, how brilliant innovative ideas get from the early stage to the commercial stage. Imperial, as some of you may know, has a spin-out model, a company, uh, basically a fund called Imperial Innovations. Um, I won't go on at length about that, but that has had some great successes with spin-off ideas becoming businesses. One, at least, has listed on AIM the capital generated uh, at the further stage comes back down the chain into the laboratories at Imperial and so on. But that doesn't work everywhere. And at York, what they're finding is that some of the brilliant ideas become businesses, then struggle and have to be reconstructed at this sort of middle stage. So the bioscientists are turning to the management school for corporate um, restructuring advice. Um, the problem is, as I say, that our venture capital culture is nascent at best. It's there, I mean, Dragon's Den on the telly is an example of a sort of wider public interest in the idea of entrepreneurs putting money behind interesting, sometimes wacky ideas. Um, a lot of city people I know or hear of who have these giant bonuses, one of the things they like to do is to start putting money behind small and interesting business ideas. So there is a recycling of of that city money in the right direction. But what we don't have is the kind of clusters of sophisticated investors, um, business school alumni, friends and colleagues that there are around Boston, around Stanford, and so on, that is what makes the, um, the American system work so well. And in innovation, another point Richard Sykes made to me is simply that in innovation, Speed is of the essence. If you have a bright idea, you have to have a system that will rapidly bring it to commercial development. Otherwise, simply someone else in the world in another laboratory will have a similar idea and will commercialize it quicker than you. Um, so essentially, that's my cut on this. The British are still innovators by nature. There's a lot of brilliant work going on. But there isn't the right funding structure to put us on that level playing field. Um, unusually, for someone from my perspective, I. I gather that this government gets more pluses than minuses on this topic, and I suspect the city gets more minuses than pluses. But both, both sides need to come up with new mechanisms to make it easier, quicker, safer for scientists and engineers and designers to take brilliant ideas and turn them into viable commercial products. Thank you very much, uh, Martin. Two important comments, one about science one about venture capital. I'm sure we'll pick those both up later. But I'm going to move straight over to Amanda West. Amanda West is the global head of innovation at Reuters. I think the perspective that you bring to this, Amanda, of course, is the perspective of big corporate innovations. 
big corporates and innovation was not always thought as synonymous observations, but nonetheless, Amanda, in our previous discussions, you were suggesting that big corporates have discovered new ways of stimulating innovation. So perhaps that's a perspective you could share with us. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about life within the big corporate and, and how you attempt to get the big corporate to look for the new idea and, and then fund it. And actually, what I'm going to say relates back to both the previous speakers because I think there are two or three really, really important things in, in terms of a big corporate looking for that new idea. But as a tiny bit of background and context, I'd like to make a couple of points. One, we are not, obviously, within Reuters, um, the core of innovation. We're not in the pharma industry. We're not in the IT industry. And so a little bit like Julia was saying, we're having to look for that new business growth in slightly different ways to those industries. It's about how you do this, I would argue, than your raw core idea. There are frankly tons of good ideas around, but the challenge is how you get enough cash and the expan an expansive sort of mindset and how you approach the, op the opportunity than it is about the core idea itself. So um, three, three points I'd really like to make. Um, within the big corporate, I would argue it's brutally important for you to have the, to take a VC mindset and attempt to apply it within your organization. Now, we are not a VC, so I'm not suggesting for a second that within Reuters we, ha we, we operate like a VC, but to employ the mindset is a very good thing. The second thing is that I fundamentally believe that the world of competition has slightly moved on and the world of cooperation is probably far more important if you're going to attempt to um, generate new ideas. And then the third piece is passion. And frankly, if you haven't got it, don't go there, because it takes a lot to get your new idea from a fledgling sort of half-baked <laughs> thought on a piece of paper to a revenue generator. So those three things, um, to tell you a little bit about what we're doing within Reuters, my job uh, sounds great, uh, looking for the brand new three to five year transformational idea for Reuters. I have to say it's bloody difficult to do. Um, so what have we done? We've, we've first of all set up what we call our venture board and we are attempting to really look at how we can get the slightly more wacky idea on the table um, as quickly as we can, and this venture board, which includes our CEO, our COO, and the gentleman who's sitting right in front of us, who's one of our non-execs on, on the board, Ken, is there to really help us take the slightly more bizarre, in some cases, idea and give it a little bit of cash so that you can investigate it beyond the end of your nose. And I'll give you an example. We are currently piloting a service in India which is looking at delivering um, prices and, and weather data to farmers who have you know, annual income of $2,000. And this service is going to be delivered over mobile phones. So this is a really, really different thing for Reuters. It's a different thing for anyone, frankly. These farmers don't currently have huge numbers of mobile phones. And for a big corporation to do this, you've got to give it a certain amount of space. You've got to let it develop such that you can see whether the opportunity is there or not. So the venture board, people pitch up. They've got 10 minutes. They pitch. If, they don't, if their argument, frankly, isn't cogent, then we stop it immediately. And we stop more than we start. 
So there's a VC mindset there. The second thing is that if our project can't immediately describe the customer and can't passionately demonstrate that they've talked to quite a few of them and that they're going to part with cash, we again dump it immediately. And I think that's really, really important in this day and age. And frankly, you can get in our industry, which is largely computer-based, you can get a, a, a prototype out to a customer in under six weeks. And you have to do that, and you have to really prove whether that customer is going to cough up cash for what you're, what you're going to deliver to them. And then the third piece I would argue within this VC mindset is human capital. It's all about the people. You have got to get the A-grade team onto your idea as quickly as you can. And frankly, a C-grade idea with the A-grade team on board will, will make it work. And we are investing huge amounts in actually profiling people as they come into the program and trying to really get them into a position where they will succeed. And these people are slightly different to the core, the norm within Reuters. They're hugely ambitious. They can completely cope with ambiguity. They can deal for months not quite knowing exactly where the, the, the revenue is going to come from. And they will frankly hound down that idea un, until it looks as though it's got a serious revenue stream. So the VC mindset. Second bit is cooperation. We spend a lot of our lives, in, in my little team looking outside of the company, we don't spend an awful lot of time internally and we look a lot at macro trends of which there are tons that are shifting hugely at the moment. Let's look at blogging. I mean, we've all heard blogging and user-generated content, and yes, that's here to stay, but frankly, it, it's only just started. It, there are many, many more industries where that trend is going to be brought to bear, and just earlier this week, we were talking to a company who intends to do this for the film industry, and they've got quite a long way, and this is going to be user-generated film content. Um, another example, Second Life, we, we, we launched a bureau in Second Life in last, last uh, October. I, frankly, we took it to the venture board earlier in the year and they all said, what a load of rubbish, go away. We, we then, for one reason or another, got it into Second Life. I have to say that the amazing thing here is that if you were our journalist within Second Life, Adam would tell you, one, the economy is going to be bigger than Belgium by the end of this year, and two, and, and two, that we, we took Second Life to Davos. We got more scoops in Second Life than we did out. So how we're doing interviews with him. So this is about the expansive mindset. Okay, my final point is passion. You have got to be passionate about what you're doing. And we have a CEO who thankfully is very, very keen for us look, to look for the different ways that we could generate new revenues in the future. Without Tom and without the board, we wouldn't, we wouldn't exist. And if you don't really have that within your big corporate, don't go there, because you'll be wasting money and time and effort and energy. Thank you. That was great, Amanda. Thank you. Suppose it was, I think it was probably worth getting up just to hear big corporates use two phrases, which I haven't heard before. One is passion, and the other is a VC mindset. And we will certainly come back to the concept of a VC mindset in big corporates. But before we do, um, our final panelist, James Woodhausen, of course, well known to everybody in this room. James is an extraordinarily prolific writer, a professor of forecasting and innovation at De Montfort University, a CV way too long to read, but I couldn't help but look at your website this morning, James, and see that under the section, People Who Inspired Me, you include Galileo, 
Einstein, and Steve McQueen. So on that note, we will finally hand over to you, who might cast a slightly different perspective on where is Britain's innovative edge. Well, you're very kind, Jonathan. Um, I mean, my perspective is that basically in Britain we prefer talking about the culture of innovation than actually doing any in the lab. It's as simple as that. And uh, I think, you know, when Amanda talks about um, passion, I want to be dispassionate. Uh, and when um, Jane talks about, uh, you know, experience and corporate social responsibility, I want to put the accent on the rational. I'll tell you why. One of the th I agree with lots of what the speaker said, but one of the things that surprised me about what Martin said was that we're supposed to be very good at renewables. Well, if you look at the budget last year, because we're having a budget very soon this year, if you look at what Gordon Brown said last year, uh, he said that he would put aside a whole 50 million for microgeneration and that special uh, new labor technology that we all know about, micro wind. <clears throat> uh, and then he did the usual new labor thing of mentioning the 50 million pounds four times in the space of the budget PDF. So that made it go up to 200 million. Uh, and then he said, you know, it covers, in, although it's not much, it covers a whole 30,000 buildings, most of them schools, because really the DTI's view and Gordon Brown's view, I believe, is that parents just don't get it about climate change and microgeneration and anything, you know, only kids do. Uh, you know, so kids are more aware, because awareness is better than knowledge, as we know, with the Labourites. Uh, and I thought, well, I'm going to have a look at, you know, where did this policy come from? Because actually, I think we're very weak in renewables. Um, and uh, the answer is, if it'll just go down. Oh, yes, I'm doing it back to front. Here we are. Uh, yes, this is the first time I've done a presentation like this. Um, this is a little uh, windmill on the top of Croydon Car Park. Uh, and it generates about uh, enough electricity to power eight homes for a week. And it's all from the DTI's document, again March last year, our energy challenge. And what they said from a report from Hub Consultants about Britain's technology and innovation in renewables is that they did all these pilots and while some installations only produced very modest levels of energy, in other words, none, uh, you know, the um, behavioural impacts in terms of energy awareness uh, were considerable. The qualitative impacts of microgeneration, and I quote, can be substantial presenting a living, breathing, and emotionally engaging face to energy consumption. Now, what's that saying here? It's saying it doesn't matter that it doesn't make any energy as long as you have a new labor feel-good factor and you've got the experience of sort of tapping into the Gaia uh, and all of that stuff, you know, and kids are better because as Tony Blair has told us, children are the future. Did you know that? Uh, some of you may have been laboring under the misapprehension that they're the past, uh, but I'm here to say that they're the future. So I just can't take seriously any claims made for innovation in this country. The sum going on, the sum going on in the world, I think if you compare it with the Victorian era, there's not a lot going on. Our perception that it's always speeding up probably says more about our vulnerability and our impotence in the face of globalization than it does about the genuine pace of change. You've got to distinguish between the real pace of change and the perception of much faster change. And in Britain in particular, there's no R&D going into financial services. Even if we take seriously the service economy, very little R&D happening there. And I've got to ask Jane, you know, I'm delighted to know, like, like Martin, that mortgage endowment products are genuine innovations. But when I phone a call center, not 
friends provident, for which I remain a client, uh, I don't see a whole lot of innovations there in acoustics, in terms of the background hubbub, uh, in voice operation, few people emulate BA, which does do a good service, that's a genuine innovation. And if you look at, uh, you know, what the funding is, um, I'm surprised that Martin, you know, wants to back Gordon and just indict the city. You know, I think it's a very city-orientated view to think that the problem with British innovation is the wrong VCs or, you know, the, the failure to adopt uh, out-of-the-box thinking. If I hear another call from Nesta or anybody else for out-of-the-box thinking, uh, you know, it, it's going to drive me mad. I never heard a CEO call for inside-the-box thinking. You ever hear that? You know, that would really be out-of-the-box. But that just, sh uh, you know, that shows just how cultural this whole thing has become. Because if you look at the real money, what was the engineering and physical sciences research grants recently for six projects in robotics? By the way, Jane, I don't think robotics is shifting around electrons. I think you've got a category error there. Robotics is about articulated arms, you know, maybe for building the 100,000 houses a day that the UN, in an underestimate, says the world needs right now. It's not about shifting electrons around new, new endowment policies. I wish it was, but it's a bit tougher. And if you look at the money, what the Engineering and Physical Science Research Council just laid out for six robotics projects was a total of £852,000. Because you know why? We don't want to pick winners in this country. You know, that would be Concord, Blue Street. You know, we just can't afford anything more than £852,000. You know, that's about sort of four houses in Leicester. I think you'll find. And we're, uh, you know, we want to continue to say that our architect friends, that sense of place, the end of the cul-de-sac, uh, you know, bathing, as one council has it, in a small amount of bath water every day so that you're doing your bit. You know, that's the kind of innovations that we think are really, uh, are really groovy now. And I say, along with Galileo, Einstein, and Steve McQueen, that we should follow Toyota and make 7,000 homes a year from factories uh, costing around £100,000 each. You specify them yourself, how much wardrobe you want, you know, can accommodate all tastes. And that is possible in, with iPods, it's possible with homes, to take a very pressing political example for our younger generation who will be living with you for the next 30 years. Why don't we take the risk of moving to manufacture? I don't want to hear about Ronan Point. My son says, which boy band is he in? Uh, you know, forget about it. We've moved on from Ronan Point, and we are still not using voice operation, video conferencing, internet protocols, radio frequency identification tags, robotics in China, containerization, uh, uh, built-in routers and Wi-Fi and built-in solar panels at the factory, not in the mud and rain. We're not doing that for our kids. So don't talk to me about innovation until somebody comes back and says, I'm prepared to take that risk. And I think we will end on that note. So, end of part one. I think what we promised you was four very different perspectives to the question, where is Britain's innovative edge? For Jane Stevens, it has something to do with services and more. For Martin, it's a powerful science base, but some serious questions about the venture capital framework which can develop that. For Amanda, it has something to do with uh, corporates with a VC mindset uh, and a sense of passion. And James, you will forgive me if I quote verbatim, a man who cannot take seriously any claims for innovation in this country. I know you said a lot more, but you won't mind if I picked out that quote. They got it on the podcast. There it you must are. be right. It must be true. I think what we do now, and we're bang on time, Julia, 
um, is that we, we really open it up to you. And may I, may I suggest that this should be, of course, about questions, but equally it should be about your observations and your comments and your opinions about the matter at hand, where is Britain's innovative edge? And we'll take a combination of questions and observations. There's a mic doing the round somewhere. And if you wouldn't mind just saying who you are. Thank you. Uh, Maurice Mendoza, World Business Magazine. Uh, it's just an observation, really, or a comment. Um, looking at it from the perspective of multinational companies or global companies, uh, what seems to have happened in the last 20 years or so is that they are, um, they're not thinking in terms of nations when they, when they want to base their operations uh, around innovative clusters. They're thinking uh, in terms of using the, the globalized world, if you like, to, uh, to maximize um, innovation. And they don't seem to have uh, um, any, uh, obviously, they're not necessarily driven by sentiment towards uh, a particular nation. What they're driven by is uh, the idea that if they, if they have an R&D center um, in Asia, for instance, they, they will be able to tap into knowledge uh, that is gained because it's in that locality. Um, and then the, the task for them is to maximize all these various different innovative clusters. And I just wonder, if companies are operating in that way, what, what implications does that have for, for nations? Because the national debate is often about, well, why are we not more in innovative? When in fact, uh, global, global companies um, are operating on the basis that uh, that really isn't the question. The question is, where do you find the most talent? And that uh, you know, perhaps nations need to think in terms of alliances and uh, um, you know, I think Amanda West is making the point about cooperation. Maybe that's the way they have to go. Can we take one or two other comments, and then maybe Martin, you'll pick up some of those themes that Morris suggested. Hi there, so I'm Matt Peacock from Ofcom. Um, just following off on that, and actually uh, a point that Amanda made, m probably more of a question than a comment actually about the ending of competition and cooperation taking over in its place. Um, I, I, I would like to challenge that. I mean, if you look back at the history of innovation. Take you know, two two examples: Edison, Westinghouse, um, Intel, AMD. Fierce competitors that drive innovation. I, I'd like to explore more why you feel that cooperation rather than competition will drive forward innovation, because history tells us otherwise. Martin, why don't you just pick up that point of Morris's, if you don't mind? Morris, your, your issue there was about companies. Their their question is not um, why is Britain, France, or any other country innovative. Their question is. Uh, you know, GlaxoSmithKline would be an example of this. There might be 10 or 12 different centers where there's very um, uh, excellent pockets of talent, if you like, and, uh, and, and our question is how we pull all, all that together. Um, so I'm just saying, what does that mean for the, for the sort of ongoing debates, if you like, that we have naturally about how strong a country is in innovation? Yeah, I think the only, only sort of sensible response I can give you to that is, is that it seems to me, from all these conversations I've been having, that actual physical proximity and clustering of interesting intelligent people, people with money, um, academic institutions, um, you know, and so on, is actually still quite important that this thing can be approached on a global and virtual basis, but that what makes it work in California is actual physical proximity of all the players um, that are needed to make this work. Um, and that is what some of the British universities are trying to achieve. It's what's happening in, in Cambridge and York. It's, um, and Imperial, which I cited, and I, and I think just people feeding off each other ideas and money and so on is a very important thing. And, and I think, I, as I understand it, it's the crossing over of different kinds of innovative um, science and technology which makes breakthroughs. So you have aeronautical engineers working on things to do with how the heart muscle pumps 
and so, uh, you know that kind of crossover, which can only happen really pretty close together. James, will you pick that up, and then Amanda, I'm going to turn to you to yeah. Matt's question. Well, I think, you know, uh, all this stuff about clusters just shows how we lack innovation. It all goes back to Michael Porter, the competitive advantage of nations, 1990. And 17 years later, uh, Demos, or as Steve Bell, the cartoonist, described it as dildos, because there's so much, you know, policy wonking going on there, concludes that actually there's no need for a national system of science and innovation and technology. All you have to do is roughly what you've been hinting at, which is sort of go around scooping up the world's R&D like a multinational. Very convenient to say that at a moment when the initiative for innovation, ladies and gentlemen, has clearly shifted from the West to the East. So we hear more and more that, you know, actually if you spend money on corporate R&D, there's no guarantee of an outcome. Booz Allen just said that. Wow! I never suspected that. I thought the, you know, the outcome of R&D was always completely predictable. Although, why would we do R&D if it was? So, I just want to say that clusters is an old doctrine. It's a personification of the doctrine, Martin, that proximity, you know, is a guarantee for innovation. So we see the sort of spatial determinism that our urban planners like very much, where you have to have a cultural quarter or a technopole, as the French have it. And that way you can get involved not in knowledge generation, new knowledge, but in what Sainsbury talks up so wrongly, knowledge transfer. That's not the same. All universities are told to do knowledge transfer. It's a McLuhanite view of technology, which says all, there's abundant knowledge out there. You just have to com combat market failure by getting everybody in a Bill Clinton post-it note session. You know, and then you get all of these in interdisciplinary things, like aeronautical heart engineering. Myself, if I'm going for a coronary, I'd like a proper surgeon <laughs> myself. You know, call, call me old-fashioned. Right? But I don't want Labour's interdisciplinary stuff on the cheap with the post-it notes. I want strength in depth, you know. Now, we do have strength in depth. Richard Sykes is right about that on bio. There's no doubt about that. I'm not immune. I put it one-sidedly. I then followed it, if you want to be verbatim, saying there are innovations going on. There are innovations going on. But generally speaking, the rate of innovation, the pace, the significance of it all is you know, n by no means comparable with our sensation that everything's speeding up and all of that. It's a sensation thing. And that's why I've got to get off this sort of passionate, you know, bus and, you know, play the hard and entirely unhumorous uh, scientist. So I want to know, when is Nesta going to drop all of its, you know, sculptors, meat, chip designers uh, projects and actually put some serious money in real robotics, not electrons circulating, but real robotics that can help the older people of this country over the next 20 years, right? The, there are one million iRobots installed in America. Fifteen seconds. There are 15 seconds worth of iRobots installed in Britain, and we've got to change that for our old people. Amanda West, cooperation or competition? So I think there's a fundamental difference. I think if you're sitting within an industry that is wholly based on invention, IT, pharma, then you're spot on. But I think outside of that, so Reuters, look at Reuters, what are we? We're a content company and frankly, we can work, where we used to sit and sort of doggedly think, well, there's us and here are our competitors. In many cases, working with them or indeed working with companies outside. So we do a lot of work with, say, our suppliers, who sometimes border on, the, on competitors with, with Reuters, so take an IBM. 
we, there is far more fuel for us in terms of getting our product or service to market and working with these people than there is from us sitting on our own within Canary Wharf attempting to invent the next service for Reuters. And I think the interesting piece is that if you look at it quite expansively and you say, actually, a lot of the very new new stuff is going to come from places you least expected. You know, the West, keep looking at the West Coast in terms of new user-generated services, which just come out. That's of huge value to us. And, and, and the thought that we're going to sit within Reuters and invent those things ourselves is just ludicrous, frankly. So I think it's about your, your business and, and whether that it applies to your business. Lots of hands up. So we'll take three or four at a go, if you wouldn't mind moving around the room. <coughs> Hi, my name's Nico McDonald. Um, I have two short questions, one about leadership and one about the lead. Um, Martin, you talked a lot about Gordon Brown and the bonus points that he gets for uh, his policy. I'm very interested in that the leadership in this country seems to be, it talks about innovation, but actually where government could actually lead, not least because it's the biggest uh, spender in this country, uh, it seems to fail to. So just two instances. In this uh, city, we just extended the congestion charge, aka taxation, to the west of the city and have almost no innovation in transport. Uh, we have bendy buses, which is technology 150 years old. We may soon have iBus technology to tell us when they're going to be late, which would be great. <laughs> okay. Secondly, Crossrail, supposed to go pretty much underneath this building, has been on the boards for 15 years, still isn't funded by Gordon Brown. And that would at least say we are serious about transport in this country. So where is the leadership actually setting the agenda and creating a culture that innovation might flourish in. Secondly, who are we innovating for? And in the real world, not necessarily the business world, Amanda, um, the attitude towards people seems to be, you're overpaid, you know, you're oversexed and over here, you know, you, you are, uh, it's a consumer culture, we all have too much, uh, we really should cut down, you know, but in the spirit of what James was saying about energy use and all the rest of it. Now, if we really think that people are comfortable and, uh, you know, okay in this country, why would we innovate anyway? I mean, what's the point? You know, why don't we just, you know, do what we do already? Can we take a couple of other comments? In the meantime, you'll pick up the question on government and leadership and innovation. And maybe, Jane, you wouldn't mind reflecting on who are we innovating for? You spoke about customer experiences when your presentation. Um, Maxine Taylor from Cancer Research UK. I'm very interested in hearing the debate and discussion and everything else. Uh, I think um, there's a danger of us being incredibly negative, which won't drive innovation. Um, I think that what we have to be is passionate and positive and competitive as well as collaborative. And I just I want to, um, to just back the government um, to the extent that Martin has done in terms of up till now around the massive amount of investment and passion that the government has shown in science over the last 15 years. I would say there is a little bit of wobbling going on now. We've just had 40 million pounds worth of cuts. Um, imposed on the research councils, which you might have heard Sir Martin Rees talking about a week or so ago. That is serious because it's going to cut into work that's going on now. Um, but there is some really great innovation going on. I mean, in, in our sector, I think the important thing is Cancer Research UK, as a voluntary sector organisation, works with the public sector, with universities, but it also works with the private sector. Sector. We have a technology transfer company which is working with the pharmaceutical and biotech industry to actually make sure that what we innovate in our laboratories when we're producing Nobel Prize winners for this country is also translated into clinical benefit for patients. And I think that message does need to be heard before we get too defeatist. It's, I just okay. use us as an example because it's the best one I know. Um, but there are plenty of others in this country as well as we're, if we're prepared to listen to them. Thank you. Well, let's take one more comment. George Brock from The Times. 
there's an assumption hovering over this discussion, mostly uh, implicit, occasionally explicit, that one of the really important determinants of innovation is government. It seems to me that none, none of the speakers have provided any evidence so far, and I don't see how they could, that government has any effect on innovation at all. And of course it has a lot of effect on science, um, but that isn't quite the same as having an effect on innovation. And I just wondered if we might reflect on what government can really usefully do in this field, because it might have an influence on the margin, I suppose, at Martin's clusters, if Martin is right about clusters. But isn't it more likely that their significant contribution is indirect in, for example, something like physics? I mean, there is a very serious crisis of physics teaching. James rightly said that bio is going pretty well. That partly reflects the fact that biology is now a very popular school subject. It's agonizingly difficult public policy issue to get physics teaching better because it gets into really heavy non-innovation issues like how much do you pay really good science teachers and how do you get really exciting science teachers into physics teachers into schools because you can't force people to take physics unless they think it's exciting. That's a much more useful role for government. Why, why don't we pick up that point across the board, across the panel? Short, pithy responses, please, on government and innovation. Is there any possible relationship between the two? Jane, you want to kick off? Yeah, if we can just, for government, sort of look at some of the regulation that, that's around. I think it has a positive in terms of, you know, price capping does drive innovation because you have to find a way to, to be efficient. And I think. Um, that has actually worked. On the negative side, though, it, it delivers a real risk factor, uh, and I think that actually drives down innovation because people don't want to put their head above the parapet because hindsight vision will say something is wrong with it. Amanda, government, or as Nico put it, leadership and innovation. Well, I'm going to talk. I'm going to give you a, a, a personal sort of piece of experience. I mean, I don't think this government supports small business. I think. And I think small business, from my perspective, is where a lot of innovation comes from. I went to a session at the DTI where they were going to supposedly fund new ideas. <laughs> wow. That was quite something. I sat there. I had four hours of boring presentations. They then told me I could fill out a form in triplicate, hand it in. They'd give me a response in nine months. <laughs> nine months. And then I might get a third of the funding that I was asking for. I mean, to me, that says it all. Uh, James, government and innovation, I hesitate to ask you. But <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I hate government as much as you do, George, but, uh, you know, they've, they've allowed us to not build a new power station in Britain since the year 2000. CTRL, only fast, high-speed link, 19 miles in a century. Um, they, in cancer research, they put forward the view, and Richard Rogers is dead keen on that, that if you put the right kind of hospital art on your uh, walls, you know, it's spatial determinism, then, you know, cancer recovery rates and throughput will be quicker. Well, call me old-fashioned, I'd rather the money went on cancer research. They say, bird flu, don't panic, don't panic, just call, you know, the NHS Direct, don't panic, don't panic. Don't panic also about MMR, you know, did I, my sons get injected for it? I won't say uh, if I'm in Downing Street. So they also bring about a psychology where fear is the main mode of propulsion. Uh, politically and psychologically in this country, and that's got to mean aversion to uh, innovation. Actually, government does play a bit of a role. I wish it didn't. If you look at GPS, right, uh, uh, on mobile phones, that came out of 
you know, government research, Bell Labs, and many other things in, uh, in America. If the motivation is there and there's any sense of direction, which there isn't in this country, we know that even with government, if you take the Spitfire, produce 24 hours a day for six years, night and day, through 17 different marks, right? Mark 17 it went. You know, we don't have that kind of direction. Now, now I don't want us to go on a war on it, but it's clear that, you know, when we've got a collective goal in mind and we're clear, um, rather than just being paralyzed by fear, then we can genuinely do something. It doesn't matter where it comes from. We can find the, mon the funds for it that Martin wants. We can find the energy for it and the culture for it. Martin, a quick comment on government, leadership, and innovation. Um, yeah, well, let me just try and knock on the head the Martin van der Waer praises Gordon Brown thing that <laughs> since I, I, have, I have typically been ruder about Gordon Brown in print than almost anyone except Neil Collins, who's here somewhere, I think. Um, what I am saying is simply as a plain fact that more mon taxpayer money has flowed into universities and research under this government than uh, under the previous Conservative governments by a wide margin. What would help a lot would be a radical simplification both of the tax breaks and of the access to the grant money, but that isn't in the nature of this government, so that is a point of criticism. The government has no role in the laboratory except conceivably in weapons research, and even weapons would probably be better designed by Jonathan Ive of Apple in California. Um, but there has to be money, and in the absence of the, the um, venture capital culture which we've touched upon here, uh, the money to make these ideas work has to come through taxpayer funding. So, so my praise of the government is limited to that extent. Jane, did you want to say something about who are we innovating for? Your comment earlier about customer experiences and innovation. Yeah, I, I think that um, it has innovation has changed from very product driven, and um, that's a very obvious sort of in innovation. I think now we're seeing a lot more innovation almost in the back office um, that almost goes unnoticed. Uh, we're doing it for the shareholders. There are very efficient capital markets around and a lot of choice about where people put their money and we have to ensure that we deliver the right returns to shareholders and that does require a lot of innovation to ensure that you get the returns uh, on investment uh, that, that they need. But I think importantly we're actually doing it for, for customers. Again, a lot of it is in the background. Uh, I mean, James mentioned about, about call centres. Um, and as are in the UK, so they're not, not offshore. But the innovation that, that's gone out in terms of the technology that they use and is still actually happening is very significant. The customer doesn't see it because they're there on the end of the phone, but both in cultural terms, in terms of developing culture, getting the empathy right, but also in terms of the systems, so that when a customer rings through to Friends Provenance, we have one call centre, you know, regardless of which one of the four million policies that they're actually talking about, uh, and the person there can deal with uh, all the questions. Let me conclude this round by coming back to Maxine Taylor's question of Cancer Research UK and asking you, James, for Maxine, defeatism is the enemy of innovation and we are just too defeatist. Any thoughts on that? Well, no, I'm really euphoric, you know, I, I want to capture the zeitgeist, so I think, you know, we're going to say that everything's great and hunky-dory. Um, but, it, you know, if you look at what government says, if you read the Eddington report, well, this is a country that builds 40 miles of main roads a year, the fifth largest industrial power in the world. We build 40 miles of roads 
main roads a year. If you look at the Eddington report, it's basically like John Major's Cones Hotline, right? He doesn't, he doesn't want any new roads because that would be unsustainable. What he wants is more co co cones around the slip roads and so on. So if anybody's defeatist, you know, I want to say that I'm the advocate of maglev. There's only one other person who does it, and that's John Redwood MP, right, for God's sake. But it's too important to be left to John Redwood, you know, to Vulcan, right? We, what, the, what Shanghai is doing between the airport and Pudong, you know, they desperately need in Liverpool to London. So that when you, t you go to a funeral in Liverpool on a Sunday, it doesn't take five hours to get back. That is defeatist, you know, and then we, we learn from the Department for Transport, unrealistic to expect London long-distance commuters to sit down on railways. You know, we can't have them sitting down. Bad for obesity, you know. So, uh, you know, we face a situation where our green friends, through their preponderant influence on a witless and anti-science government, uh, have made it their business to say, new houses, no, let's stop it with the planning system. New roads, no, let's stop it. You know, the government has no influence, George. I fear it does. The planning system is impeding new houses, new roads, new innovation in this country. It's the, it's the 60th anniversary of the Town and Country Planning Act, 1947, and we still think that's good enough in 2007. We're wondered, we wonder why the Times runs an article saying you can't swing a cat in a central London apartment anymore. Thank you. Let's have another few rounds of comments and questions. I'm Ian Wiley. I, um, I'm chief executive of a um, charity in North London called uh, the Treehouse Trust. If I say that uh, Treehouse runs a school which deliberately doesn't employ it, uh, teachers in the classroom, I guess you would call us innovative. We uh, educate children with autism and we deliberately don't use teachers in the classroom because we use young psychology graduates who are passionate about what they do and we train them from scratch to work with them. But actually, we are a school. We, have to, we don't get any breaks here. We have to uh, work within DFES standards. We have to work within child protection standards. We have HMI inspectors all over us. And we have 12 local authorities, both in, in terms of education departments and also in terms of social services departments. Despite that, um, we are very successful. Our outcomes, I think, are superb. Um, but we don't get any space. We've been going 10 years, and we don't get any space within which to do this. But it, it, my gripe not necessarily is against the lack of space that we get from local and central government, although that would help. Um, we, we have venture capitalists. They are called our fundraising department. And actually, we've had to raise now 12 million pounds to build our national centre because we're still in porter cabins. Um, the other concern I have, actually, is the risk-averse culture that we have within our media. And if I didn't have very powerful and influential friends like Julia Hobsbawm, like people like Nick Hornby, whose son has been at the school for 10 years, then I fear that, actually, I may well have uh, media at some point saying, what the hell are you doing here? Why haven't you got teachers? Why aren't you conforming to what schools ought to be doing? So I think that our risk-averse culture, we can do it, but we actually do it so much time by ducking and weaving and diving, not just with local and central government, but also with some of the would-be scrutineers who actually want you to conform. Okay. Let's keep going around, but hold that thought on risk-averse culture in the media. Julia? 
unusually I'm going to contribute at my own event. It was a couple of things. I, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with, with the, um, the sort of dead hand of government in terms of aiding innovation. I think Amanda's absolutely right. And certainly there's no sign that government is looking at small businesses and identifying individual personalised approaches. And I long ago abandoned trying to raise VC money for editorial intelligence because you have to go through more hoops to get VC funding than you would ever manage to spend hours doing business. So it is a bit of a myth that the VC world is, is fabulously enlightened and innovative. The other point I wanted to make is about alliances, which seems to me an innovation across culture and across business. So Amanda's uh, project at Reuters identifying rainfall patterns to alert farmers is going to need a mobile phone partner in order to actually put those handsets into the field. And it may not uh, build James's uh, innovations for old people, but actually retail and the fashion industry has shown the power of alliances and allegiances. You know, this sort of stacking of, of, of collaborations and indeed events like this are popular partly because it is an alliance between Friends Provident and Nestor and, and Reuters and so on. So alliances, but also don't let's eulogise on VC's innovation too much. One last observation. Hello, it's uh, Stefan Stern from the FT. I've got a, a, an observation and a, a question. And James, it's an observation about your heroes, really. I just, it seems to me that if um, Steve McQueen had been more assiduous in his study of your other two heroes, he might have been able to get his motorbike over that fence at the end of <laughs> The Great Escape. Um, but the question is, the serious question is uh, about the Gowers' report on intellectual property. And I wondered if anyone has a view on whether that is a friendly framework or design for innovation or a, a hostile one. I, the question from Ofcom implied that competition is so intense that we must be absolutely vigilant about IP and not let outsiders in. But how, how much does that help in innovation? Thanks, Stefan. I wonder if the panel wouldn't mind if I would just maybe throw this observation from Ian about the risk-averse culture in the media having a regressive effect on the innovative edge of this country. And perhaps there's no audience uh, more qualified than this audience to take that issue on. Is there anybody within the, within the audience who wants to respond to that? The risk-averse culture in the media has a regressive effect on, amongst other things, innovative approaches to education like Ian's or perhaps other examples. Anybody want to comment on that? John, no. Well, just one comment. We haven't talked much about the public sector this morning. Um, and if you spend any time with chief constables, people who run healthcare trusts, people who run social services, and say to them, are you innovating then in service delivery? They will immediately raise the issue that's been raised very powerfully about in an environment of zero tolerance for failure if you're a public official, um, and also a political culture, which means you're likely to be hung out to dry if you make that mistake. Um, of course, it's a massive block, and I think the bigger block is on public sector innovation probably than it is on private sector. Any other comments on that? If the panel doesn't mind, I'd like to keep the microphone in the audience for the moment. Uh, Nico McDonald, as well as writing about the media sector, I have consulted in this sector in the past. I'll just make two observations. One, that the way that the media deals with phenomena like weblogging and second life and so on actually trivializes what innovation really is uh, and shows no imagination. Secondly, the media sector itself is an example of risk aversion. Right? I've worked in this sector for 20 years and they have made no innovations almost. Reuters may be an exception. One last comment and then we'll come back to the Paul Sloan. Destination innovation. Um, I loved all the panelists' uh, talks and especially the rebellious attitude of uh, James at the end. Um, but uh, 
does government have a role to play in innovation? Yes, partly because it's responsible for 40% of the economy through uh, the public sector, and the public sector is risk-averse. And part of its risk-aversion, I, I work with DWP and HMRC on innovation programmes, is what they call the Daily Mail factor. That When John Prescott plays uh, croquet with some of his officials, he's ridiculed in the press for it. When the dome goes wrong, which is an innovation, the government is lambasted for it. And innovation involves risk, it involves failure, it involves wasting money on things that don't work. You can't get away from innovation involving trying things. And the public sector is reluctant to try things, uh, because of the fear of the media, and it's also not empowered to try things because of government attitudes towards central control, regulation, and, and lack of devolved uh, empowerment. Let me ask Amanda to, to comment on Julia's um, observation and rather bitter experience of venture capital. Venture capital does not have the liberating effect on innovation that many suggest that it might do. Is that right, Amanda? So, two points. Um, I think there's a huge difference between the VC industry here and the VC industry elsewhere. Um, and if you do go to the West Coast, and I use that just as an example, you know, YouTube was two guys sitting in a, a venture capitalist for, I don't know, nine, 12 months before they then set off into the rest of the world. So elsewhere, I do think VCs more directly sort of incubate early stage ideas. At the end of the day, though, VCs are out there to make money. I think it's more about the mindset than it is about the raw economics. You know, that that in order to get money in this country, you do absolutely have to either have rich family friends and or or know some angels. I mean, that's just the way it works here. But I do think elsewhere, and I would argue that elsewhere is somewhere we should look to try and emulate that there is some incubation and therefore funding of early stage ideas. Jane Martin identified this point right at the beginning about the difficulties of venture capital liberating innovation. Do you have thoughts on that, private finance and innovation? Yeah, I think this comes back to Amanda's point on um, collaboration. I think there are good examples where um, certainly business can work with uh, private funding, whether it's venture capital or, or elsewhere, um, to actually develop activities. And I think the points that have been made about risk are absolutely right you do have to take risks and venture capitalists are prepared with the right business case to, to actually invest in something which an established business uh, finds it more difficult to do. So I think it's that partnership uh, working with private funding to really challenge ourselves and, and we've got involved in a number of um, joint ventures with, with companies. Um, overseas as, as well as in the UK and that has really challenged the way we think uh, in order to really drive out the benefits. James, I'd like you to briefly say something to Stefan about intellectual property and innovation, the Gowers report. Well, I think the accent in Britain is on the property, not the intellectual. That's the simple thing to say, right? There's an army of lawyers out there and no bloody ideas. Uh, you know, and what do you expect when we're all paying taxes for the Royal Homeopathic Hospital, you know, in South Ken, where, you know, the more you dilute some water, the better effect it has on you. You know, that's what we believe in uh, in this country. So uh, I think, you know, what, what can we say in Britain when, to take the point about the public sector, the big report on that transformational government, if you read it November 2005, if I'm not mistaken, says the government needs to be thinking about new technologies, for instance, mobile phones. 
well, now that's really amazing in 2005. You know, we might just start to commence to get ready to begin to think about having a plan for spending more than what is currently spent on local pilots in uh, public sector mobility, which is four million pounds, Project Nomad, right? We're really pushing the boat out in mobile IT in government. So, you know, I can't take seriously the intellectual side. Um, I just think that there's a new age attitude out there. And I would say that the media is not, the, for me, the problem. The media likes to celebrate some innovations, but uh, particularly when you don't boil your kettle, as David Attenborough uh, found out. They want innovations in uh, behaviours, as they like to put it in the plural. And what they mean is innovations in the sense of nothing that will have an impact, but zero impact on the climate change and everything, but infinite regulation. And that's what we're, you know, what we're looking at. And it's not just the media that's behind that. The would-be scrutineers that you so eloquently described are in government. They are the, the clipboard army in the NHS, preventing uh, innovation. So I think the public sector is very germane to this, this discussion. We can't just blame it on the media. We're going to have one more round of uh, comments, one more quick round, then we're going to draw to a close. Any other very brief observations, preferably those... New, one or two new faces. Uh, morning, Ollie Barrett from uh, Make Your Mark with the Tenor. Uh, Amanda, your uh, venture board um, really caught my imagination. And one of the things you described was the 10-minute pitch, whereby if they couldn't really put their finger on who the customer was, then they would be out on their ear. And that sparked my imagination because it uh, reminded me of the perhaps apocryphal story of Michael Faraday and when he stood in front of his peers and demonstrated sparking electricity. Someone said, well, this is all very interesting, Mr. Faraday, but of what use is it? And of course, his answer was, well, that's a good question. I would ask you, of what use is a baby? And so that was part of my observation that um, perhaps if you say, well, if we can't say who the customer is, we must know where the revenue is. And there I would think back to um, Sergey and Larry or... Um, or, or the YouTube boys, who obviously didn't put their finger on where their revenue would come from. So if you're not nailing who the customer is or where the revenue is, or if that's what you need to see, to what extent are you in danger of missing the really big one? And last comment from the floor, and then we're going to wrap up here on the panel. So prepare yourselves, panellists, for one minute, pithy, incisive wrap-up comment. Good morning. Lissa, uh, Restoration Partners and Reuters this morning. I've been involved in entrepreneurship and innovation in the UK actively for about 15 years. And I have to say this morning, one thing that hasn't changed in 15 years is our ability to rant about what's wrong with innovation and entrepreneurship. In the intervening period, though, a lot of things have changed for the positive. And I'll, I'll instance one in the interest of being, being brief. But if I take what's happened with the AIM market in the United Kingdom, it's a brilliant example of innovation. We've created a second NASDAQ, which was a huge part of the fuel innovation in, in, the, uh, in the United States. Entre uh, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, science, all those things existed in the States. NASDAQ was a fundamental difference that popularized wealth creation across the US from a technological base. We have the same thing here. How much attacked government has put in regulations to ensure that the US can't stifle it quickly. So there's a good uh, plug, I think, for the UK. And I would say that, that for me, the strand that in 15 years has tied all this lot together isn't clever people, because as Amanda said, they are everywhere in the world. It's not markets, because those are everywhere in the world. It's actually greed. It's chasing, making money out of something. 
And I'll, I'll wrap up by saying I remember once at an intellectual debate about the importance of the internet about 15 years ago in the venture capital world. I was fighting to the death, because I'm a Brit, some other chap who argued with me about the future of the internet, and we were interrupted by a big venture capitalist who said, gentlemen, 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 you've missed the fundamental question on the table. Well, we hadn't. We laid them all out, and we were hand-to-hand -hand fighting for each of them. He said, there's only one question. How large is the trough, and how many snouts are trying to get into it? And if we don't go back to that Victorian ethic of trying to make wealth out of innovation, it'll just be an academic subject. The market will drive. Um, why don't we begin to draw this to a close with one minute's observations, and this time we'll come from right to left. So, James, over to you. Well, there is more Labour government spending than there was Tory government spending. That's true. It's gone from nothing to something. It's still bloody uh, bugger all. So, you know, I agree with Martin that it's on the increase, but it's still, by OECD standards, if you look at what OECD says, very poor. Um, one of the big gaps is in Gershon. Sir Peter Gershon is the chairman of Symbian, the people who make the operating system for many mobiles. What has happened since the Gershon report identified £109 billion worth of government spending, which could be used to bring in small firms and you know, get them backing innovations and so on? Bugger all. Nothing's happened uh, there. Um, the, I think the important thing is, you know, I really, I, I really do differ from your remarks about how large is the trough. Now, you know, George Bush has many critics. But when he said, we're going to send a man to Mars, he didn't say, how large is the trough, right? He put Michael Faraday's question, because it's there, because a baby has no utility. <clears throat> Can you imagine, for new labor, an innovation that had no instrumental utility, that did not produce social cohesion, uh, did not smash up the Chinese, and all of these things, but actually was done because you believed in getting out there and going boldly where people had gone. George Bush did not have a business plan to go to Mars. Sainsbury says, the trouble is in this country, you've got all these inventor boffins, and they need the DTI to help them with a business plan. Yeah, right, uh, you know, Mr. Sainsbury. So that isn't the problem. We need a bigger vision, which is certainly not de defeatist. It's the opponents of maglev who are defeatist, and the people who say we've got to give it a whirl, who are going to answer the problems of Liverpool and really get this country back on its feet, especially in those less prosperous northern regions. We've got to be serious about innovation, and any amount of uh, just feel-good stuff has really got to be dispelled. Thanks, James. Amanda. So I'm going to agree with James' last comment, which is, I, I'm going to use the word passion again. You know, it, it, it really seriously is about how committed you are to this thing. And to come back to your point, they don't happen overnight. They take for forever. Whatever it is that you're doing, it takes a long time to get from half-baked idea to something that either has revenue or a direct benefit to the customer of some description. Um, and without that, frankly, and, and, that, and that has to come from the heart, from the gut, you won't ever just pick the right idea up front. And without that, it's all a waste of time, a complete waste of time and money, uh, be it in the public or, or the corporate sector. Thank you. Nicely put, Martin. Uh, yeah, three quick observations on intellectual property. Um, very briefly, it seems to me the problem is not whether we've got a good structure of intellectual property law in this country, but whether China has any intellectual property law or will to enforce it at all, because if it doesn't, then anything designed and made here will be instantly copied at a fifth of the price in China, uh, and, and we won't reap the advantage. Um, secondly, on public sector innovation, my view is 
influenced by living in Yorkshire and observing local and regional government. And I was actually horrified to learn that there's now a regional innovation council run under the umbrella of something called Yorkshire Forward, which is the regional development agency reporting to the unelected regional assembly in Wakefield. Um, the whole of that sort of structure is a complete waste of public resources. Um, and what comes down to small towns like the place where I live is supposedly innovative ways of making plans and strategies for small towns like my town, which are a total waste of money, which have resulted in no physical change or improvement whatsoever, except conceivably the introduction of green and brown wheelie bins. Um, so the, the coda to what I said about public spending is that there is an enormous amount of money wasted in the public sector on... Um, <coughs> strategizing, talking to communities and so on, uh, which achieves nothing whatever. Um, lastly, I just a nice example, I think, of British innovation um, to um, please James. There's a company called Sibelius, which does musical notation software, is the absolute world leader in musical notation software, and has even designed some software where numerous composers in different parts of the world can work on the same composition. What a brilliant idea is that? And uh, just imagine if we could get an aeronautical engineer and a heart surgeon in there as well. What would it produce? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Martin. Jane, final comment. Right, I think um, for me, innovation just looks very different uh, from how it used to uh, in the past. It isn't as sexy, it doesn't capture the imagination in the way that it used to, and I think therefore a lot of it goes uh, unnoticed. It certainly isn't everywhere, and all the comments that people are making about the public se sector can totally understand. Innovation is not happening everywhere, but I think we must recognise that it is happening uh, in certain areas, and that's very much driven by competition in a global market we have to find ways to be more efficient to attract customers uh, and to actually ensure that we have the right sort of culture yes there are challenges and I think regulation uh, the risk factor is very much uh, at the fore of our thinking uh, and something that we need to ensure that we get over but I do feel that it is happening uh, and we need to embrace it thank you very much um, I think that at this point, all moderators or chairmen are absolutely doomed when they try these very contrived attempts to pull together different strands. So you will be delighted to know that I have no intention of doing that. Um, struck, however, by two concluding themes, uh, which perhaps the four panelists could agree on, that whilst innovation, as you put it yourself, requires compelling visions, compelling visions, um, innovative capacities of this country will be less and less to do with some kind of central prescription of how it needs to be done and increasingly become much more widely distributed and accessible and practical to the citizen in the street. Um, but I, I, I think I have to leave the last comment uh, to a, a, a testament to this panel. After all, I said 75 minutes ago that the job is to start on time, which we did, to finish on time, which we will, uh, but most importantly to ensure that something meaningful happens in between and I'm indebted to Jane Stevens, Martin van der Weyer, Amanda West and of course James Woodhouse and to have uh, given us 75 minutes of uh, extraordinary contribution to where is Britain's innovative edge. We want to thank you very much here at Nesta for being uh, our guests in our building this morning. We look forward to many more collaborations with you Julia at Editorial Intelligence and of course with Reuters and Friends Providence. Thank you very much.